Okay, so I'm talking about alienation in three domains. The domain of religion, the domain of politics, and then the domain of labor. Uh, and I'm in particular talking about alienation in the domain of politics. Uh, and as I said, Marx's analysis of alienation in the domain of politics is very dependent upon this Hegelian schema, which he presupposes uh, and starts from. And that's a schema which distinguishes rather sharply between what Hegel calls civil society, which Hegel describes as a system of needs. That is, civil society is the area of society in which people have needs, satisfy those needs, satisfy those needs by development, developing their productive capacities, exchange. So it's what we would call the economy as opposed to the family. There's the system of needs, the civil society. That's a well-defined area of, in society. It's roughly speaking the economy. And now Hegel takes uh, a sort of analysis uh, that he takes over from laissez-faire theories. He thinks that if you think about the economy, you should think about it as a group of people who are construed as more or less autonomous, more or less independent, freestanding agents who are self-interested. They're maximizing their utilities. They're maximizing their self-interest in this realm. You enter into the realm of civil society or the economy. You maximize your self-interest in a way which you don't in the sphere of the family. You don't maximize your self-interest in the sphere of the family. That's not the right way to think about that, Hegel thinks. You do something else. So in the sphere of the economy, you're maximizing your self-interest. And this is a sphere, he thinks, which operates according to relatively universal abstract laws. So you have both greater individuation in this sphere and greater generality. The people in the sphere of the economy are more highly individuated. They're allowed to develop their powers ad libitum. They're allowed to be selfish. And they're also governed by universal laws, abstract laws uh, defining how people uh, will deal with one another. So if you have a market stall, you charge the same price to everyone. There's a kind of generality there. And this sphere operates according to laws that are to some extent then universal, impersonal, and they're self-generated. So that's uh, what he thinks uh, about uh, the economy. Now, a, a truly laissez-faire analysis would think two things about such a sphere. It would think that this sphere could be stable. That is, it's a basic assumption that if you have a sphere that has these properties, if you have a sphere in which self-interested agents are interacting with one another according to universal laws, then that system can continue to reproduce itself. It doesn't need fixing. It's autonomous. It has a kind of stability. Um, and um, uh, after, uh, um, it, it has a kind of stability. Uh, I have something I have something for you. I have something for you after the after the after the lecture. Uh, it, it has kind of stability. In general, you'll also think it has some properties of efficiency. And most importantly, this is really important for Hegel, the laissez-faire person will think that this sphere is governed by something like the principle of the invisible hand. 
So it's a sphere of economic exchange which reproduces itself, it's stable, it's efficient, and it's a sphere in which although each individual person is self-interested and acting in a, a self-interested way, the common good results, as Adam Smith says, as it were, through an invisible hand. So uh, this is a sphere in which I, pr I pr pr propose, I pursue my interest, you pursue your interest, we both pursue these interests under certain laws, and these laws make it the case that stably, although I'm pursuing my interest and you're pursuing your interest, neither of us is pursuing the common interest, the common interest will result from this, because uh, there'll be an efficiency of distribution of economic resources and there'll be maximum productivity, etc. So there'll be, a, there'll, be a, there'll be an invisible hand here. Now the important thing for Hegel and also for Marx is, are these two things. The claim that this form of economic organization is stable. Uh, if you leave it alone by itself, it will reproduce itself more or less uh, uh, endogenously. And second, that it actually does produce a common good and it produces that common good through an invisible hand. That is, I, I don't need to intend the common good in order for the common good to result. Not only do I not need to intend the common good for the common good to result, the common good will only result if I'm selfish. The common good will result uh, as a, through an invisible hand precisely if we all are all selfish. That's, the, that's one of the thoughts that Hegel and Marx object to most. So Hegel now objects to both of the propositions on which this, uh, this conception of the economy is, is, is based. Both the assumption that this economy is stable, that's one objection, but the second objection is an objection to the very idea of the invisible hand. That is, he thinks there's something inherently alienating about the idea that the common good, even if it were to be the case that the common good resulted from selfish actions on the part of the people involved, there'd be something deficient about a form of economic organization that depended on an invisible hand to produce uh, a, a humanly uh, important result. That is, there's something inherently alienating about the idea that the common good does not result from the intentional action of any person or the intentional action of any group of people. It results, as he says, through an invisible hand. That is, we don't know that it results. No one puts themselves the task of pursuing the common good. It results precisely from a black hole, as it were, a black process, a black box process, and it results precisely from our being selfish. So there are two, so now Hegel objects to both of those. The first thing he says is, look, this is a realm of alienation. It's a realm of alienation because all of the powers in the realm of the economy are human powers. There aren't any gods coming down and giving us extra powers. There aren't powers that are generated from nowhere. It's all human powers. Nevertheless, if you enter this sphere, you'll see the market laws and the market forces 
confront you as if they were in inalienable forces which were uh, opposite you. So you're alienated in this sphere because you're subject to laws, and those laws, although those laws are in some sense laws that govern human powers and the development of human powers, they have taken on an independence. The laws of the market have taken on a kind of objectivity, and they confront us as something uh, distinct from us. So even if they produce uh, the common good, uh, they don't produce the common good in the right way, because somehow it's part of a non-alienated common good that we know we're producing it. It isn't produced as a kind of necessary byproduct of our all being selfish. So, uh, so the first idea is uh, this is a form of that Hegel has is this is a form of alienation. We have market forces that are really our own powers, but they're out of our control and they confront us as something alien. And second, he thinks, and now I can't go into the argument for this, but I, I, because if we did, we'd never get any further. But just believe me, he also thinks that it's not stable because this structure, if it's construed as a freestanding structure, leaves open the possibility of an infinite accumulation of wealth on the part of some people and an infinite impoverishment on the part of other people. And in fact, the laws are set up in such a way that they don't exclude that possibility. And so this is going to be an unstable structure because people won't, in fact, continue to operate according to the market laws if you get larger and larger numbers of them excluded from the possibility of actually participating in that. So uh, that's, a, that's a second argument that he has against this. He thinks it's inherently unstable. Now, Hegel's solution to the question of the instability and also his solution to the question of the alienation is to introduce another structure or to describe another structure which is introduced here, which is the structure he calls the state. Now, the crucial thing about the state for Hegel is that the state is a social structure which is structurally, that is ontologically and institutionally distinct from the economy. The, uh, the state is not a part of, is not supposed to be part of the economy. Uh, it can't be part of the economy. Uh, if you think of the economy as inherently the sort of thing that's destroying itself all the time, the state is an external uh, structure which is not dependent on any economic forces and which can and has powers. They are powers which we give it, powers to intervene in the economy from the outside. So if you have the economy chugging along as it would normally chug along, Hegel thinks, chugging along, uh, making everybody more and more selfish, uh, encouraging them to be more and more selfish, encouraging them to be more and more maximizing of their, uh, own, um, of their own interest, um, generating great, uh, great quantities of wealth for some people, great uh, impoverishment for other people, you, you need a mechanism from the outside to prevent that structure from, dis from just disintegrating. And it can do that by intervening in various ways. So it intervenes to limit profits. It can intervene in any number of ways. But it, it must be a separate, distinct institutional structure. So the state has two properties, well, three properties. One is it's a locus of human powers. The state, too, doesn't get powers from nowhere. It gets powers because we have, as Hegel would say, say, alienated those powers to the state. The king is the king because we 
accept him as the king. His powers, the king as a king, has only the powers we give him. He doesn't have any other powers from anywhere else. So in some sense, the state structure is nothing but human power. On the other hand, the state structure is those human powers in an alienated form, because they confront us as something which is distinct from us. Really, there's nothing there except the king, but that's not the way it looks if you're actually confronted with this. So there's a structure there which is institutionally separate. You have the king, you have a parliament, you have various sorts of structures, you have a police, you have an army, there's a structure there. They have human powers, they're institutionally separate, however, from a civil society or the economy, and they intervene. And they intervene to keep civil society from destroying itself. However, that's only one of their functions. The other of their functions is a function which, he which is very important for Hegel, which is the function of, as he says, allowing human beings to live a universal life. That is, the state must intervene in the economy and control the economy to prevent it from, it from destroying itself. That's very important, because if the economy destroys itself, spirit doesn't get realized, because everybody's dead. So it's got to do that. But although it's got to do that, its real function is something different. Its real function is producing a realm within which people can discuss their lives, discuss what's good in their lives, discuss their own arrangements in a way that's distinct from the way they discuss that in the realm of the economy. In the economy, the assumption is it's every man for himself. It's every group for themselves. Selfishness is the order of the day, and the economy will go better the more selfish people are. In the state, the idea is this is a space in the parliament and in the bureaucracy and in the army where you can talk and think about yourself in ways that are not strictly self-interested like this. There's a kind of universality that's just, so if I run a business, uh, in the economy, my business, I try to maximize my profit. If I'm sitting in parliament, at least the idea is, in parliament, I'm not thinking about maximizing anybody's interest, I'm thinking about the universal common good for the society. So the function of the state, he thinks, is twofold. It's one, to keep the economy going, preventing it from becoming completely independent, intervening in it, the other is to create this space, which is an abstract space in which, as he says, the citizens can live a universal life. And it's got to have both of those things. Now, finally, of course, for Hegel, it's really important that the state, too, however, is a form of alienation. So the economy is a, is a realm of alienation, because in the economy, we've got market forces that confront us as something alien. Now, we try to control them. We control them through the state, but we control them through the state by alienating yet other of our powers to the state. So the state, too, is a realm of alienation, although a realm of alienation of a different kind from the alienation that you find in the sphere of the economy. Because in the state, too, if you confront the police force, the police force seems to be an external power intervening against you. Now, the, so the state also is a locus of a certain kind of alienation. However, that's why Hegel thinks that no, this is something that's often overlooked because uh, Hegel says it explicitly only in a place nobody looks at. Namely, in the beginning of his lectures on aesthetics, if you look at the beginning of his lectures on aesthetics, he has a discussion of this. The state itself 
cannot be freestanding. The state is not the end of the story. Uh, people often talk about Hegel as if Hegel thought the state was the sort of final structure which gave ontological stability to something. But Hegel says very clearly, the state needs a warrant. It needs a rechtfertigung. It needs a justification. The state can't just be a structure which reproduces itself simply by talking about its own, uh, its own uh, internal structure. It needs, as he says, a warrant from a higher sphere. Uh, in the technical terminology Hegel uses, the state is an instance of what he calls objective spirit, and it's dependent on what he calls absolute spirit. So the state, too, he says at the beginning of the lecture on aesthetics, needs to have a justification which is given to it by something outside it. And the things outside it is this thing which Hegel calls absolute spirit, which is art, religion, or philosophy. So the state finally must appeal to something which is not just its own internal structure, but it must appeal to religion. He thinks this happens in, uh, he's got a great Protestant view of, of Catholicism, he thinks this happens in the divine right of kings, uh, or in the Middle Ages. In the Middle Ages, the state is seen as having its warrant in religion. Uh, in the ancient world, the state uh, also has a kind of warrant derived from uh, a kind of religion, but it's a religion that's more connected with art. The in the Greek city-states, Athena is the patron saint of, uh, <coughs> kind of patron saint of the city of Athens, uh, but she's essentially an aesthetic uh, creation. As you know, the Greeks keep saying, the poets create for us the gods. Right? Homer creates, I mean, it's a, it's a very, very unusual and counterintuitive uh, assumption for those of, those of you who may have grown up in the, uh, in, in the, the Judeo-Christian tradition. But for the Greeks, it's the poets who create the gods. Right? They say that again and again. So it isn't that it's where religion comes first and then art. It's Homer who produces the definition of the Olympic gods. Uh, and, and so Hegel says, and, and so the, the Greek polis needs a warrant from this aesthetic realm, uh, which is created by Greek religion, which is a form of aesthetic religion. And now Hegel says, but in the 19th century, we've outgrown appeals to art and appeals to things like the divine right of kings. We now need philosophy, which is uh, inherently a theoretical, uh, a theoretical enterprise uh, in which spirit comes to understand itself correctly as in its teleological form, and it's philosophy that gives the warrant for the state. So the state exists only to the extent to which it can appeal to some kind of justification that's given to it from on high in the 19th century. That's got to be some kind of philosophical uh, uh, warrant. Now, Hegel also thinks that this allows him to overcome the alienation in the state. That is, <clears throat> we encounter the state, and the state is actually a structure of coercive power. It's our own powers we've alienated to it, but we still confront it as a structure of coercive power. However, he thinks that by virtue of philosophy, you can come to understand that what looks to you as if it's a kind of arbitrary externalization of human powers in the state actually has rational necessity. And by virtue of understanding that the state as a structure has to have the structure that it has, 
that is necessary for the realization of human universality and rationality, that there be such a thing as a state. That's what philosophy tells you. Philosophy tells you it's necessary, and there's no alternative. It's necessary, and it's also constitutive of rationality. By understanding that, you can overcome your sense of alienation from the state. The state still confronts you as something uh, which looks external to you, but you now have an argument which shows you that what looks like something that's just external to you is in fact uh, a part of uh, what it's the necessary form of a rational human life. Okay, so that's the theory. Now, Marx, of course, immediately jumps on that and says, look, this notion of, uh, Hegel's term for that, of course, is reconciliation, right? You, uh, you confront the state as an alien uh, uh, power. You understand through philosophy, however, that this power has to have the properties that it has, and that it's rational that it has those properties, and that it needs to have those properties so that you can lead a rational life. And by virtue of understanding that, you come to identify, roughly speaking, with this state. You don't see it as, as alien anymore. You come to understand its necessity. And then Hegel says, and you are therefore reconciled with the state. And Hegel says again and again, reconciliation is the goal of philosophy. The goal of philosophy is to reconcile us to the world we live in. Now, of course, that's the point in which Marx begins by saying, look, this is, uh, this is nonsense. So that's Hegel's analysis of, of alienation. Marx takes over from Hegel, roughly speaking, the diagnosis, but not the, uh, the prognosis. Sorry, so he roughly takes over from Hegel the, descriptive, the description of the way in which the economy operates and the way in which the, uh, the state operates there. But of course, he changes the, uh, he changes the terms in which these are discussed, and he changes the, the result of it. He, one of the, so, one of the, so the first thing he says is that uh, the Hegelian state, in fact, does not uh, allow for a universal life. That is, the, the Hegelian construction depends upon the claim that in the sphere of uh, the economy, people are self-interested, but in the sphere of the state, there is a realm of universality. The state actually instantiates some kind of common or universal interest. And so Marx's first observation is, if you actually look at states, they don't actually instantiate a kind of universal rationality. Uh, they actually instantiate a particular form of rationality, which is determined by the particular form of economic structure that's around there. That is, if the state really needs to keep the economy going, it's, it's going the, the fact that it needs to keep the economy going is going to mean that the sphere of purported universality that it describes is not really, uh, is not really universal. It's really particular. So in the later version, it's the particular interest of the bourgeois class that owns the factors of production uh, that gets expressed in the state. It's not universality. So there's a way in which the state is more universal because the, the, the state is, so the individual capitalist enterprise is completely self-centered and self-absorbed. Self and it's true that in the state, 
The state in general is not simply the sphere in which an individual, cap an individual capitalist enterprise is maintaining itself, but it is a sphere in which the interests of the capitalist class as a whole is, uh, is, is, is allowed to come to fruition. So it's not so, it's, it is universal. Again, remember, all of this, none of these terms are dichotomous, right? Remember, it's not X or not X. These are all matters of degree. So to talk about universal, so the distinction between universal in particular is not for Marx and it, or Hegel a distinction between black and white or black and not white. These are, these are questions of degree. So to talk about something being universal is to talk about it as being universal relative to something else thought as being particular, and that's a question of degree. So it's true, he will, Marx will say, that, that in, the, in, in, a natural, in a 19th century capitalist state, the state will be, in some sense, a sphere which is more universal than the sphere in which the individual enterprises are all fighting for their lives and trying to maximize profit. It will be more universal than that because it will look at the general interests of the capitalist system, not the interests of this particular petite, this particular corporation. But although it will be more general than that, it won't be what Hegel thought, which is universal in some more absolute sense. It won't be, uh, it won't be uh, a framework in which the interests of all the people in society are taken account of, or some kind of common interest which is not linked to the form of common interest which is imposed by the need that the society has to generate enough um, profit for the members of the capitalist class. So the first observation he has is that Hegel, Hegel's claim about the universality of the state is, uh, is not in fact true. Second, he says, look, Hegel's notion of the reappropriation of the powers of the state, his notion of overcoming alienation, is wrong. It's basically wrong because it's essentially cognitive. Basically what Hegel says is, You've got this structure of power that confronts you. Now, and Marx says, now how, can, how could you overcome this situation which you're confronted by a structure of power that's external to you? One way you can do it is you can tell a, a theoretical story. You can tell me a story which tries to convince me that although it looks like an external structure, it actually isn't. So you can have a philosophical argument to the effect that, so Marx says, philosophy has always been uh, basically the camp follower of a social formation. Philosophy has always been the, you know, the, 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 the running dog of whatever, whatever is, the, is the system of, of, of organization involved. It has no independent standing. And so, so you give an argument. So, so when the policeman beats me up, um, how do I overcome my alienation there? Do, you, do I overcome the alienation there by having an argument, by, by you're giving me an argument to show that there has to be a police there? Or do I overcome the alienation by changing the social structure so that the policeman doesn't beat me up in that way anymore? And so Marx con contrasts then the Hegelian project of getting reconciliation with the world as it is by argument, that is by philosophical analysis, and he says, what that is, is roughly speaking, he didn't use this terminology, of course, Freud later talks about identification with the aggressor, right? That this is basically, what he says is, the Hegelian model is basically convincing you to accept 
a state of alienation, to change your view rather than actually changing it. And so his, con his, his alternative to that is that you, if you really want to overcome alienation, you don't explain to me that alienation is necessary. You don't explain to me that it's necessary. You change the social structure so that, in fact, there is no more a separate structure, which is a structure that's outside our control, to which we've alienated our powers, and so that those powers, which should actually be ours, are actually located in a structure over which we have no, no, no control. You don't explain that, you change it. That's the second thought that he has. Uh, now, of course, that presupposes something which Hegel denies. Hegel did not, Hegel, you might think of Hegel responding to Marx, of course he didn't because he lived earlier, you might think of Hegel responding to Marx by saying, yes, it would be very nice, it would be very nice to, to abolish uh, these structures of alienation in the political sphere. It would be very nice. But it's not actually possible. You, 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 there's a big gap in your argument, Marx, and the gap is you have to show not just that it would be, as it were, desirable to change these things. Of course, all sorts of things might be desirable. Right? Marx himself always says that he's an anti-utopian thinker. He doesn't just try to describe what's good. He describes, he wants to describe something that's good and possible, right? Uh, and so Hegel would say, look, I give you the best thing that's at all on offer. The only, we, we have no alternative but, to the, but this economic system and this political system. And the best thing you can get is a kind of philosophical argument that shows that that's necessary. If you reject this, you have to show that these forms of alienation are not necessary. And that means you have to show how we could do it otherwise. Uh, and there, of course, uh, Marx is in a bit of a stymied situation because, as I said, to be an anti-utopian, so Marx is, says again and again he's against utopianism. Now he means by utopianism two different things, actually. One is he means by utopianism something that's cognitive. That is, he takes very strongly over from Hegel the idea that philosophy cannot be in any important sense uh, a predictive, right? Uh, Hegel thinks philosophy is retrospective and gives you an analysis of the present. And it can't uh, predict the future. Hegel notoriously says, no, every philosopher is a child of his time. No philosopher can jump over his own shadow. You can't predict the future. Marx says, of course you can't predict the future. Because, Hegel was right, every, right, precisely if you think, as Marx does, that philosophy is not a separate cognitive enterprise that's autonomous. If you think of philosophy as part of a social service, a, so, a form of social organization, it's going to be difficult to see how that part of a social organization could free itself completely from the blinders that will be imposed upon it by being a part of that social organization. So you can think that philosophy would be predictive if you think it's, as it were, a completely autonomous way of doing things. If you think of philosophy as basically just the way in which people think in general about their own society, there are going to be limits to how predictive it can be. Because epistemologically, you're not going to be able to imagine something that's really different. So what Marx says is, no, you can't cognitively predict what a good society will be. 
the most you can do is you can analyze the contradictions and deficiencies in the present. So you, can say, you can't say, Marx says again and again, it's not my task to describe what he says, die sozialistische Garküche der Zukunft, the, the socialist cookshop of the future. Uh, I can't tell you how food production will be, will be managed. That, but that's not an objection. Because what I can do is I can analyze the present, and I can show in the present that there are contradictions in the present, and those contradictions actually generate great evils, things that we can observe as being evils, and therefore I can tell you that getting rid of those contradictions in the present will be an advance, although I can't tell you what particular form the, the overcoming of those will take. So I can show to you that private ownership of the means of production is a contradiction, and it's now limiting the possibilities of human life. I can show you that. I don't need to think about the future to show you that. I can analyze the present and show you how. This is what I do. I can analyze the present and I can show you how private ownership of the means of production is uh, messing us up in various ways. That's an analysis of the present. And from that, we can draw the conclusion that something else would be better. We'd be better off without it. I can't tell you what exact form that will take. So there's a cognitive component to the anti-utopianism. Then there's also a practical component to the anti-utopianism, which is you can't ever specify a future without specifying a mechanism by which the future will be, uh, will be attained. So you can't simply talk about a future that's good unless you talk about how you can get there. And of course, later, Marx is going to think it's a great, great advantage of his view that he doesn't just describe what's bad about the present society, contradictions, but he also describes a, an agent who is an agent who is an agent who has a strong interest in changing. So it's not utopian because he shows that there are these contradictions, there are these ways in which the organization of society limits us, and he shows there are people in the present who have a deep interest in making that change. So it isn't just, as it were, it would be nice if this, it's that this is actually a bad form of social organization because it has these features. And look, there's a group of people, mainly he calls them proletariat, who have a genuine vested interest now in changing that. So he says that's not utopian because it's not saying, oh, it would be wonderful if we did this. We have no idea how we're going to get there. But uh, I've, I've both described what's wrong with the present, the possibility of changing that, and an agent who is an agent who has a deep need and uh, motivation to engage in that change. So, uh, so okay, so there's this, there's this anti-utopian project, which in a way makes it impossible for Marx to say anything to that Hegelian argument. So the Hegelian argument is, this form of social organization is necessary. Uh, given that it's necessary, the only thing you can do, the best you can do is see why it's necessary. You can't uh, do anything more than that. But of course, he gives these suggestions at various places in the, in the work about reabsorbing. So the, his, his model is, we don't explain why the, the state 
has to have the structure that it does. And we don't reconcile ourselves with the state by seeing that it has to have the structure. Rather, we reabsorb the powers of the state so that in reabsorbing the powers, we do not need to have those powers located in a separate apparatus. And so the idea is something like this. Think about the parallel case with religion. With religion, you remember, he said, the powers that we attribute to God are real human powers. We don't want to get rid of the powers. But the more we actually acquire those powers ourselves, the less we need to attribute them to this separate structure. And so the idea in general seems to be something like this. As I said, he's, he's an anti-utopian, so he never describes it in these, in these terms. But I'm now going to speculate, contrary to what he would have thought was possible, just to give you some idea of what might have been. But think of a steel mill. Now, my father worked in a steel mill uh, in the United States that employed several thousand workers. It was a big, big place with an iron, uh, with, a, with a fence around it on a piece of land that was on a peninsula near a river. It was, a, it was almost a city by itself. Now, in this steel mill, this steel mill was run by a central office, which was not there. It was 600 miles further west in Pittsburgh. So the, the, the decisions were made there. And this, the workers worked, and they did various different things. Now, in this steel mill, a number of things happened. Occasionally, there was production. Occasionally, there were cases of assault. One worker would beat another up. There'd be accidents. There'd be all sorts of things. So there'd be an external police force that would come in. If, if Johnny Jones beat up Jimmy, Jimmy Jackson, the police came and took care of that. And, and so there was, there, was a, there was a kind of power there, which was a power of resolving conflict. But that power was a human power, but the power was located in an external police force. Now, actually, it's more complicated because the steel mill had its own police force. There were actually two police forces. There was the internal police force that was owned by the company, and there was the, 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 the local police force on the outside. It doesn't matter. They're both forms of alienation, different forms of alienation. Now, what Marx suggests is, but imagine that you could reorganize this, uh, this productive plant in such a way that the functions of the police were still maintained. We still have to have someone who separates two men who start fighting with each, with each other. We still have to have someone who sees that the doors are closed at the right time. We still have to have someone who makes sure people don't go across the, the, the railway lines and get killed. We still have various functions that need to be done. But it's conceivable that those functions the discharge of those functions is not located in a, an institutional apparatus which is completely separate. It's possible that instead of, um, instead of there being a police force which comes in from the outside, you have members of the workforce who are delegated for a day or two days to, ex to, to exercise the powers of the police. That, I think, is the idea of reabsorbing the powers into, uh, in, in, into the, the, the body of the immediate producers here. Remember, so the idea, remember, it's really important for Marx that all of these powers that are located in the state are genuine human powers, and 
Right? Marx is a is historically minded. So all of, he doesn't think as he doesn't think we should go back to a more primitive form of social organization. He thinks all the powers, roughly all the powers that the state has produced, are good human powers. They're genuine human powers. They're increased human powers. There's nothing wrong with them. What's wrong with them is that they're powers that are located in a social structure of a certain kind. And then he says, and now this is the main claim, <coughs> that it's possible to reorganize. So, so this is the claim. It would be possible to reorganize the production in this plant in such a way that all the functions of the state uh, were, at, were maintained as functions. You still had traffic regulations. You still had people preventing other people from beating one another up. You had all of those functions exercised, but they're exercised by the people involved in the production process, rather than by an external, uh, external uh, uh, body who intervenes. So uh, that's one way in which he might say the, these alienated powers are reabsorbed. Uh, it was necessary for a while that we have a separate police and a separate accounting bureau and a separate this, that, and the other thing who gave orders to people, it's not necessary anymore. We can organize the, the workers themselves, and of course, then you can imagine how that would be done. It could be done by rotating in the, in, in the job of being a policeman, and you know, he has various suggestions about how you might uh, prevent the police functioning in the, in, the, in the steel mill from becoming alienated once again. You don't pay them anymore. Uh, you have them do it only for a day. Uh, you 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 have them. You have a, an advisory board that meets that oversees them. So there. So and as he says, I don't know what those those particular. The, I don't know what those particular institutions will look like. That would, to try to describe those particular institutions would be like trying to describe the Sozialistische Gartkirche der Zukunft, the future socialist delicatessen. So I can't do that. But I can say that this is the kind of thing that would happen. All of these functions would be now. Of course, that's the point at which. Hegel, but also the liberal, will of course get really, really upset, right? Because if you have the function, and this is a real difference, I think, between Marx's way of thinking about this and liberal ways of thinking about this. If you really have the powers of the police and the judiciary reabsorbed by the group, then, uh, then the group comes to have a different kind of standing from group in from groups in liberal societies. The liberals will say, uh, "You what about?" So suppose it is the case that we're working in the steel mill. I'm working with my work colleagues, and now some, somehow someone brings some kind of accusation against me. Now, now the liberal will say, "I have to have a sphere of rights that 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 surrounds me." You accuse me of something, and then I have a right to call in an impartial, the police and the courts are somehow separate from us. So I'm fighting with you, let's say, to someone, someone let me take someone who, who, let me take someone I know well, who won't take it amiss if I think. Suppose I'm fighting with Ava. We have a big disagreement, and, and, she, and she throws something at me, and I throw something at her, and we, okay. But now we're working in the same, we're working in the same collective. Now, the liberal will say, look, uh, uh, we've got to ensure some kind of impartiality here. 
Where are we going to get impartiality? You, impartiality means you have a right to appeal to a court that's outside the, the group. I have a right to appeal to it, and it's decided there. If, on the other hand, we don't have that external, that external mechanism, and we don't su surround the individuals with these rights, then the door is open to lynch justice. Because then it will turn out, of course, that uh, Ava's a very popular person, and I'm a real real dud. Everybody hates me. Everybody likes Ava. A natural thing. All of our co-workers know she's a good co-worker. They know that she's very efficient. They know that she's friendly. She does things for people. They know that I'm a bastard. I'm selfish, etc. Now, and so of course, if I'm then brought to a court that consists not of people outside the workplace who have no vested interest in this, but if I'm brought to a court, which is the court of my co-workers, then of course, who is to know that I'm not going to be penalized by virtue of just in general being a bastard? So, so this is a really important thing. The, 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 the liberal thing thinks that the, the, the concept of rights gives me, this is Hegel's thing too, Hegel thinks the concept of a right gives me actually more freedom. Because I can stand here and I can be really nasty to all of you, really nasty to all of you, and I know that the police will protect me from that. You, you might all hate me, but there's nothing you can do because I've got these rights and the police will somehow protect them. If I'm in a cooperative enterprise like a steel mill where I'm dependent on there being loaned you dependent on me, and I'm really a bastard, it's more likely, and the immediate group is not only uh, my work colleagues, but also the police, the judge, and the jury, um, then uh, I've lost some possibility of individuality. So that's the, that's the contrast that's uh, at, 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 at work here. Um, and of course, Marx might say, well, if you are a, that much of a bastard, maybe you deserve, maybe you deserve, maybe you deserve what you get. Um, but anyway, okay, so, okay, okay, now, it's very important to see that when Marx talks about politics, he uses the term politics to refer to state politics. That is, when Marx uses the term, we use the, what I've tried to say is this, we use the term politics in two completely different ways. Not completely different, two slightly different ways. One sense of politics, we speak of politics as opposed to other things. Politics means the state has power, the state, uh, politics refers to the exercise of state power, the attempt to influence state power, the attempt to control state power, the resistance to state power. That's what politics is. But then we use politics in a more general sense to mean any way in which I am trying to influence you so as to get you to do what I want. So we can speak of the politics of the family, or gender politics, or politics in the sense of uh, uh, people who have certain advantages lording it over other people. Now, it's really important, uh, the, the best <coughs> place to see this is the beginning of Max Weber's famous essay, uh, Politik als Beruf, Politics as a, as a Vocation, where he talks about these two senses of politics. The general sense of politics in which there's a general what I'm trying to say is there's a general sense of politics in which 
what we're what I'm engaged what we're engaging in now is politics. Because I'm trying, you're all sitting there politely, you're looking at me, you're listening to me, you're not interrupting me, I'm exercising a certain kind of power over you, and I'm trying to get you, I'm trying to control you to get you to do various sorts of things. Now, that might be benevolent, it might be less benevolent, but it's a form of politics. It's a structuration of power. That form of politics, however, is different from standing for parliament, uh, 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 being a judge, etc. So politics as the state apparatus in the narrow sense, and politics in this more general sense. And it's really important that Marx, when he talks about politics and the withering away of the, so he talks, you remember, about the withering away of the state and the withering away of political conceptions of various things. And when he talks about the withering away of politics, the withering away of the state, he does not mean that there will be no people trying to influence other people and distributing power in various ways. When he says the, the, the politics will wither away, what he means is the state apparatus will no longer be there. Instead of the separate police and the army and the courts, all of that will be reabsorbed by the immediate producers. Now, in the context of the immediate producers, there will be what we would call politics going on. Because the people in the steel mill, some of them will want to produce more, some of them will want to produce less, some of them will want to make more, have more leisure time, some of them want, there will be all sorts of decisions that have to be made, but they're not political decisions in this strong sense. So you must, so Marx sometimes uses politics in this more general sense, but usually when he talks about politics, especially when he says extreme things that seem to suggest that politics altogether is going to stop. And you might think, that sounds tremendously utopian. What does it mean, politics is going to stop? What, are we all going to become angels? Well, no, politics is going to stop doesn't mean, as it were, I won't try to convince you to produce more, and you won't try to convince me to build a tennis court, and etc. It means there won't, that activity won't be distorted by the existence of an external force which is institutionally separate and which has these powers which can intervene and which we try to we try to influence in one way or the other. Okay, so that's uh, uh, that's um, um, Marx's analysis of the alienation in the sphere of the state or alienation through politics, and that's to be overcome, as I said, by a rearrangement of the social and socioeconomic conditions so that. Uh, that form of alienation is no longer necessary because the powers that were associated with this alienated structure of the state are reabsorbed by the society as a whole, and therefore uh, there's, there's no alienated structure which confronts us as something we can control. Okay, now we come to the third notion of alienation, third realm in which he analyzes alienation, namely alienation in labor or the work process. And here, he says, you remember, that this form of alienation is the ground of the other forms of alienation. He doesn't actually say what he means by that, and you can speculate about that. But uh, he says that this form of alienation, alienation in work or in labor, has four aspects. And now, um, these are notes that he wrote for himself. So don't expect them to be, they're not polished philosophical treaties. So um, it isn't the case that each of the four is completely analytically sharply defined uh, against the other. Actually, there are, what he says is there are three, <coughs> and the fourth sums up the previous three. 
So that you can say there are three, you can say there are four, you can say there are one, depending on how you want to count them. You can count them one, two, three, four, or you can count them one, two, three, and say the fourth one sums them up, or you can say you can count them as one because the fourth one summing them up includes the others. So don't worry about the numbers. I'm just going to go through the numbers as it were brutally. First, he says, is there's alienation in the in the form of work in that there the in the work process in the 19th century, the object which is produced comes to represent a power which stands over against me. The object that's produced is, not, is an externalization of my powers, but although, and therefore since it's an externalization of my powers, it's part of me, and ought to be recognized as part of me, but yet as an externalization of my powers, that object is not something I can recognize as mine because it belongs to someone else. So uh, in primitive forms of production in the Middle Ages, I'm a cobbler. I buy the leather, perhaps. I work on the leather. I make the shoe. I put the shoe out, and you come and buy the shoe. I own the leather. I can see myself in that. I own the shoe. I can see myself in that. Then you may buy it. In industrial production, of course, at the end of the day, the worker does not own the product. When my father went into the steel mill, he didn't, at the end of the day, come out of the steel mill carrying all the stuff he had produced. Well, he didn't actually produce anything because he worked on the railway line in the steel mill. But anyway, the worker, the, the worker at the end of the day produces a product which, in contrast to, say, medieval forms of production, is not something he himself owns. He produces these things that belong to the corporation. So there's a, a way in which his work power, his human power, is, uh, is, uh, is impressed on this object, and that object is not, however, him or her. That object belongs to someone else. And that object, he says, comes therefore to stand over against him as, a, as an externalization of his powers with which he cannot, however, identify myself, himself. So that's the first form of alienation, alienation from the object. Second form of alienation is alienation from the process, from the productive process. And here again, the idea is that uh, in simpler forms of production, for example, in medieval forms of production, the person, the cobbler, is to a very large extent in control of the conditions of work. The cobbler can start at 6 in the morning and work till 5. He can start at 7 and work till 9. He can take a break when he wants. He has control over the actual process that's involved. Now, you might say, and of course it's right, if he exercises that control in certain ways, he's going to be out of a job pretty quickly. So it isn't as if there's no external necessity there, right? But within the realm, a very wide range of external necessity, the individual producer in the Middle Ages has control over how many work breaks he takes and how he divides his time and how he controls the, the work process. Um, in uh, industrial production in the 19th century, in the beginning of the 19th century certainly, the worker does not have that control over the actual process. The worker signs up for, work, for a working day and the actual content of the working day is not under his, uh, his or her control. Uh, the, the people who own the factories say how many breaks can be taken, they say who's going to work on what projects, etc. So, the, so the, the control over the actual process 
of uh, doing something is also, is also lost. Now the third form of alienation, he says, is alienation of one worker from another. Uh, and now this is a form of alienation in which he specifies that the alienation is not only from one, of one worker from another, but also of one capitalist from another. That is, remember that in a capitalist society for Marx, it's not just the workers who are alienated, everybody is alienated. From the fact that everybody is alienated, it doesn't matter, as he said, from the fact that everybody is alienated, it doesn't follow that everyone is equally happy in their form of alienation. So the workers are alienated, the, 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 the capitalists are alienated, the capitalists might be materially a little bit better off in their alienation, but they're alienated too. And the third form of alienation is that I come to see another person, another worker, not as a collaborator, but as a potential competitor. That is, if it's the case that labor is abundant, uh, there will be competition for the existing jobs. And therefore, I will come to see every other possible worker, not as a colleague who might work with me, but as a person who might jump in and take my job. So I'll be alienated in my social relations to the people um, I work with. The, the analog to that, he says, is an even worse kind of alienation in the case of the producers. They will not only be alienated from all other producers, if I produce gloves, um, uh, I will not want uh, other people to produce gloves very well because I want to sell my gloves, right? So my relation to them won't be collegial, or rather, or rather, as Marx says, it will be rational. It will be rational for me not to not to have collegial relations with them. But more important, and this is something Marx emphasizes in some of the early works that aren't very very well, uh, very intensely read. As a producer, I. I'm, it's rational for me to have, roughly speaking, the nastiest attitude toward everyone else that it's possible to have. Maybe what's the worst thing for a human being? Worst thing for a human being is to have a, an incredible need which they can't satisfy. That's what it is to be unhappy. To be unhappy is to have a really deep-seated need that I can't satisfy. However, if I'm a producer of something, it's rational for me to want that exactly for everyone else. If I produce gloves, what, what is it rational for me to want? If I produce gloves, it's rational for me to want everyone else in the world to be desperate to get a, a pair of gloves and not have the power to get the pair of gloves. So it's rational for me to want them to be in a state of maximal frustration so that they'll buy my, my, my gloves. So drug dealers, as it were, are a kind of model here. You have uh, a market, you know, the drug dealer has an interest in as many people being addicted as possible, the addiction being as overwhelming as possible, their need being as overwhelming as possible, and them not having a supply that they can uh, use to satisfy themselves. Therefore, they'll be dependent on uh, the person uh, uh, providing the drug or providing the gloves or whatever it is. So Marx says, this is another form of, of the alienation of people from one another, that it's rational in a system like this for every producer, every owner of uh, of factors of production, to have this attitude toward other people, to want them to want what he has and they don't have as much as possible. Okay, uh, I'm sorry, I've got to stop there. I'll continue with this next time.